noticed, I learned something in school growing up that if there was a big fight, there was going to be a big crowd, right? Unfortunately, I was often in the center of that as the victim, and there were people all gathered around. In our text today, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, there's a big fight. And it's staged by the religious ruling party of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. When you read Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1, you notice that it says this, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. And this is the way it often is when you read the Bible. The Bible's uh, just sparse in what it says, and it means a lot. So you, you want to look behind this little phrase. Then the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem came to Jesus. Now you understand, where was Jesus? In the narrative, and the stories that we've been studying, Jesus is in Galilee. Jerusalem's a long way away. It's like more than an overnight trip. This is an official delegation coming to talk to Jesus about something. It's the official ruling religious party and they were kind of also tied up with some politics as well. This was a pretty serious matter. If you mess with these people, it might cost you your life. And what was it that they were so worked up about? Their religious ruling party, they're going to come north to Galilee. They're going to seek out Jesus because Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands. Does that seem silly to anybody here? These guys, we heard they weren't washing their hands. Let's think about this just for a minute. What's been going on in Galilee? Well, for a couple of years, Jesus has been teaching the teaching of heaven to men. He's been healing people who are sick. He's been raising the dead. He's been delivering people from demons. He's been feeding multitudes miraculously. He's been walking on the water. He's been calming the storm. And the disciple, the, the, the guys from Jerusalem, the ruling religious party, get together to come to confront Jesus about making his disciples wash their hands. Now, what's that all about? Does it seem silly to anybody here? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it have been more appropriate to say, hey, we hear some miracles are happening. We hear that people are being delivered from demons. We hear that the ra- the dead are being raised. So let's go figure out. What's going on? So that maybe we can also help people be delivered from demons. And maybe we can help people get better who are sick. And maybe we ought to listen to this guy. And what he ha- But they don't have that attitude at all. They're going to come. And what they really want to do is they don't want to correct him. They know they're not going to correct him. They want to confront him. They want to embarrass him. They want to humiliate him. They want to chunk out of that so that they can get the religious loyalty of the people back to them. That's what they're about. And so their motives are not pure, they're hypocrites, they're not true, their religion isn't true, they're not from God, they're not sincerely converted, they're just coming to confront Jesus, and this is what we have here. In our text today, you're going to see it in three scenes, we'll read the text as we go through it in these three scenes. The first scene is verses 1 through 9, it's Jesus' response to this confrontation. So now let's read Matthew 15, uh, 1 through 9. The scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. 
And he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, what profit you might have received from me uh, is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect, of no effect through your tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. What's going on here? Well, there's a confrontation, right? Guys from Jerusalem want to confront Jesus. This is a public confrontation. Jesus' response to the public confrontation, by the way, this could have been a Mother's Day message. Don't forget, this is my little warning and my little reminder, encouragement to you. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. Now you are without excuse. This could have been a Mother's Day message because Jesus says, you have your little petty hand-washing ceremonies. There's a long story behind this, how the Jewish people came up with these literal books of regulations that go beyond the Bible. And we could talk about that. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to do some study this week on what's the difference between the Torah and the Tanakh and the Mishnah and other Jewish writings. And what's a Midrash? What's Midrashim? Figure that stuff out. Google it. Read about it. But you've got to understand, these people had volumes of books. Some of them were the law of God. But some of them were added to the law of God. And these were huge books added to the law of God. And so, no. These guys weren't coming from Jerusalem just to get Jesus to have his disciples wash their hands. They were coming from Jerusalem because he intentionally didn't keep the laws that they added to the law of God. And there's something a little bit more you're going to see today that Jesus even goes beyond that. And, the, and there's going to be a perfect storm that's brewing here. And so you have um, Jesus' response. His response to the confrontation was really twofold. They said, why haven't you kept our tradition? His response was, why haven't you kept God's law? And so he didn't even answer their question at all. He answered their question with a question in pure rabbinic form. They ask a question. His question is a zinger. His is a gotcha. They thought they were going to bully him. They are wrestling out of their weight class. They're going to go away with a rhetorical bloody nose. They're messing with Jesus, who is the word of God. So they're not going to win that. He knows their hearts, which is a distinct advantage in a situation like this. He knows that I don't doubt, and this is my sanctified imagination. I don't doubt in my mind that Jesus knew very, and I, I know this is true. Jesus knew very specifically what each one of these people's personal sin record was. He knew those who were standing right there, maybe even the guy who even was the spokesman who had taken money that really belonged to his parents, where he should have taken care of his parents. And in a kind of a shifty use of uh, the tradition, he had taken that money, kept it for himself, and said it belonged to God so he doesn't have to obey the law of God. The law of God says, honor your father and mother. He says, oh, yeah, well, our, our tradition is, I, I call this Corbin, so it's a gift to God, so I don't have to give it to my mother and father. And this isn't the only time Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 23, he's really going to light them up over this. But in this case, he looks right back at them and he responds to the confrontation by saying, you're saying I haven't kept the tradition. I want to know why you haven't kept the Bible. That was the first thing he did. The second thing he did is he attached to these scribes and Pharisees an Old Testament passage. It's a holy book to them. He's taken their book, his book he wrote. 
And he's using it to expose them. He says, I see you in the Old Testament. Let me tell you where you are. You're the people that worship me with your mouth and your outward actions, but your heart is far from me. They're like, we're worshipers. We're like professional worshipers. We got this thing down. We got laws on top of our laws. He says, you are honoring me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. And this he quotes the passage uh, from Isaiah. And in, in, in again, verse 8, Isaiah 29, verse 13. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, or for no reason, they're wasting their time. They worship me. And they're teaching as doctrines laws they made up themselves, the commandments of men. Understand this. There's two ways to go off the rails spiritually. One is disobey what God has said, take away from what God has said, and you're, and you're, you're in trouble. The other way is add to what God has said and say it's what God said. And that's another way to get yourself into trouble. And the longer that I live the Christian life and walk the Christian walk, the more that I realize that both of them are really, really bad. Both of them are rooted demonically and they're bad. Don't take away from what God says. Don't add to what God says. Let's look at the next little section here. In the next section, the next scene is a public teaching. So here you find this in, in verse 10. Then when he called, when he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. There's, there are going to be three scenes in this text today. The first scene is Jesus' response to the confrontation. And he sends them away at the very least with a bloody nose, right? He uses two things. One of the things he uses is he says, I know you. You say I've broken the traditions. You've broken God's law. And two, let me explain who you are based on the Old Testament. And so that's it. He sends them packing. That's all he gives them. He doesn't have to keep their rules. He's not going to keep their rules. He's not, under their, he's not subservient to them in any way. Then he says to the multitude, he doesn't bother with them anymore. He's actually believes that they should be left alone, which is the worst thing could ever happen to a person. He's not messing with them. Well, he says to the multitudes, you come here. I want to talk to you. So he draws the multitudes. He says, now that you've seen this, I want to explain what, what happened right there. That's when he uses this. They, they call it a little, little bit later on. They call it a parable. It's a little short parable. When he called the multitudes to himself, he said, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. In the three sections that you have here, there's one thing that's in common that Jesus keeps circling back and teaching again. He teaches it three times. You see it each time. When he responds to the confrontation, he teaches it, and he uses something there. He makes mention of the heart. In this, again, he makes mention of the heart, the inside of a person. And then again in the next section, he'll do it again a couple of times. It's the one thing that's common to all of them. It's what God wants us to pay careful attention to, the heart. In this public teaching, he's going to say it's not something from the outside that defiles a person. You get defiled by stuff that's on the inside. That's very profound. We still need to kind of hear that today, and we need to understand it. So this also set off a theological earthquake. Because when you read the parallel account, like in the book of Mark in particular, it's in Mark chapter 7, you see that there's a commentary there in Mark chapter 7 that he's saying, in saying this, Jesus then did away with the ceremonial dietary law. 
That was the theological earthquake, if you will. So Jesus really did two things. According to Mark, he did two things. One thing he said was, I don't have to keep, I'm not under your stuff you added to the Bible. Because you take, what people can do is they can add things to the Bible and they can use the things they added to the Bible to actually violate what the Bible tells you to do. You can add things to the Bible. In other words, the Bible says to love one another. You can add things to the Bible so that you don't have to love one another. And then you haven't loved one another. Then you violated the Bible. And he said, you did that. But then beyond that, he says, it's not what goes in and defiles the man. I'm, and so basically now he's going to, and he's going to be more clear later. And the New Testament is going to be very clear. And Jesus is going to do some things with Peter and the unclean animals coming down on his sheet. Remember this? And then Peter's going to say, I can't eat unclean things. And God's going to say to him, don't tell me it's unclean if I say it's clean. He's going to do away with a Jewish ceremonial dietary law altogether. And he says it here. And this is like going to create a firestorm of controversy. And Jesus wasn't afraid of that. He was teaching them. And so he does that in this public teaching. Now, what's interesting is that there are kind of levels. You don't really see this in the text here, but if you compare it to Matthew, you see it very clearly that there are not two scenes or really one scene. It didn't all happen out here. It's this public confrontation, and now he's turning here and he's speaking to them, and now he's talking to the disciples, but it's three different kind of places, three different scenes, specific scenes. So one, he's confronted and he responds to the confrontation. Then he draws the multitudes, the crowd, the group to himself. And now he goes into a private home, probably in Capernaum. You see that in Mark real clearly, though it doesn't say it right here. He's in a private home, and that's the next scene. It's a private teaching. So his his public response to the confrontation, which is a public teaching, of course. Then this public teaching, verses 10 and 11. And now you have a private teaching, and this is based on the questions that the disciples had. Let me just give you a little quick aside here. I'd kind of like to see this happen in this church in a way. And that is that we have public teaching, which we should always have. Maybe a big Sunday school class or ABF or this this meeting. And you have a big, like more public teaching. You're not talking back. You're just kind of listening, taking notes. But do you ever have questions? Or you want to ask a question? Or you want to even maybe, I'm not sure I agree. I, I think this, and that's healthy. We're not going to do it right now because it will like take too long. But but there's a there's an appropriate place for that. And, of course, there's a feedback that you can always send emails. We can talk and that kind of thing. And, and that, that ought to happen. But would it, wouldn't it be something if you had a, a, a place where you went into a smaller group and now you could talk with one another? Like, how does this apply? And, and what should I do about this? And, and, how do I, and I have a question. I'm not sure I understand it. A more mature Christian that's more studied the Bible more, they point out uh, other passages. And wouldn't it be something if you heard a public teaching and you thought, you know, what if I were to gather my family and I were to teach them an application for our family based on that? Or what if I had a small group of people that I'm responsible to that maybe from my neighborhood or maybe somebody I even led to the Lord. And in that small group, I'm passing on what we talked about here, but now we're taking it to another level and we're asked, we're answering questions. And that's what happened with the disciples all the time. Jesus is always trying to get away from this point in his ministry. And I don't think it's because primarily he likes birds and flowers and he likes nature and he wants to be alone, even though I know that's true about Jesus. He's the one that created all that. One of the main things Jesus is doing is, in strategically, he's getting into small groups with his disciples because there's something going on there that he's going to change the world through this small group that's going to go out and build other churches and groups. And so I kind of see an application in our church. We'll talk about that a lot here in the future as a church. But I, I can see this exciting. It can, I can see this kind of thing happening even in our church where you're getting a little one-on-one or you're having breakfast with somebody or a small cluster or a teaching or a group. And this could be your ABF. It could be Wednesday night. It could be another time. And you're asking questions. Well, here's a question that comes up then in verse 12. And this is the last section. It goes to verse 20. 
The disciples then came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I think it's kind of humorous myself. Like, did you notice they were mad? <laughs> I always, always feel like Jesus saying, did you notice I don't care? <laughs> it's like, did you notice they were mad? It's like, how could you not notice? These guys came with regalia and retinue. These guys were making it. They were all about the outward. They had uniforms. They had attendance. They were the big noise. And so when they came, they came with a flourish. And they were speaking officially. And Jesus just dismissed them. And the disciples are feeling the heat of that. They're like, I think we might be in trouble. Did you happen to notice that? These guys are connected, you know. We haven't heard the last of them. <laughs> I believe that's what's going on here. Again, giving, giving rein to my sanctified imagination. But back to the Bible. <laughs> he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Now, refer back just a little while ago to the uh, wheat and the tares, the weeds and the wheat. He's saying these guys are not wheat. They're weeds. He didn't plant them. Like, they're religious. Yeah, I know. They got laws on top of their laws. Yep, I know. But God didn't plant them. Don't worry about them. He's going to pluck them up someday. Not us. Not, he says, not my job to pluck up the Pharisees and scribes. Of course, some of them are going to get saved. It's not my job to pluck them up, he says. And it's not your job. That's kind of what he's saying. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. And then he says, and this is the play on words because they call themselves leaders of the blind. But he says they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they both fall into a ditch. Technically, the word here is the pit. And I believe a poetic reference to hell. These guys are leading people to hell. You don't want to follow them. You don't worry about them. You don't pluck them up. I'm not going to mess with them because God didn't plant them. He's going to take care of them someday. If you're a religious hypocrite, you talk the religious game, but you don't really have a heart for God, you may look like a Christian, but someday you're going to get plucked up and thrown into a pit, and that will be eternal. So some of you that sit under the sound of the Word and you know all the right things to say and how to dress and all that stuff, you are going to be in hell someday. Because your heart is far from God. And your words and your actions away from church reveal who you are. That your heart isn't right with God. And if that's true about you, I'm not being unkind to you. I'm being kind and direct with you. Swiftly repent. It's communion Sunday. The great time for you to think seriously about God. God, do my words and my actions flow out of a pure, sincere heart? Friends, listen to me. I'm not talking here about people like all of us who struggle daily with sinfulness. I'm talking about the hypocritical life that some of you are leading where you violate God's law and you know it, but when you come to church, you say the right things, you look right, and you do the right things, and you know you're intentionally deceiving people. That's true everywhere. It's true in every church. It's true this morning with some of you. So I'm just giving you a loving warning. And, you know, I don't know who you are. God knows. You may not even know in your own heart. God does know. So you say, as we examine, let a man examine himself and then take the elements that are pointing to the cross of Christ and say, Jesus, I want to be real and sincere and the real thing. I admit that I am prone to sin, prone to wander. 
I'm open about that. I don't, I don't want to be numbered among the hypocrites. Like Jesus is saying, these are people God's going to leave alone. You don't want God to leave you alone. And you don't want false teachers to lead you into a pit, into hell. So that's, he's pretty direct. Then Peter, verse 15, then Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable. That's verse 11. Okay, verse 11. What comes, it's not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. There it is again. They defile a man, make him unpure, unholy. Verse 19, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders, adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. Out of the heart, these outward words and actions, you see this more clearly in Mark as well, words and actions that are bad aren't the problem. They're the result of the problem, which is the heart that's bad. And pretending, stopping bad words and stopping wrong actions without changing the heart only makes it more complicated now because it's harder to diagnose that your heart is still far from God. So if you've been kind of actuated, you've been acclimated to saying the right things and doing the right things, you know, we mock people who like do religious acts and we don't do a lot of religious regalia. We don't do a lot of that here. And we make fun of people, maybe something that sometimes there's a, we will make fun of other people that do a lot of religious things, but we got our own outward religious things that we do. And we can do all those outward religious things and sing the songs and even you can be in leadership. These guys were religious leaders. And everyone admired them because of their scrupulous exactness by the way they kept the law, but their hearts were far from God and they were going to the pit and Jesus didn't have anything to do with them and he didn't want anybody to have anything to do with them. Are you with me? You don't want to be that. You don't want to be there. You don't want any part of that. That's what he's saying. And then he has this terrible zoo of terrible things in verse 19 that come out of the heart. Let me give you some applications this morning that are really important. Holiness is really important to God. There are different ways of saying holiness, purity, not being defiled, being learning to, to grow in sinlessness. That's important to God. I mean, that's a huge understatement. Do you know how many times the Old Testament talks about the, how you don't want to be defiled and how you want to be pure? You want to be morally and, and, and ethically and spiritually pure and right and real in your inside, in your heart. The Old Testament is full of that. The New Testament is full of that. It's huge. You couldn't even count the number of places in the Bible that says that. People ought, God wants us to be holy. He wants us to have holy lives, holy talk, holy behavior. He commands it. He demands it. It is important to God. But it's not just outer that he's looking for. It's not just outer. In other words, we could easily kind of line things up so they look right on the outside. That's what these guys have done. They're really good at it. But it is not really holy. Because over and over in each of these sections that we talked about, it was the heart, the heart, the heart that God looks at. And it's not a New Testament thing only. That was clear in the Old Testament. God looks... Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So it's not just an outer thing. Now, some people overcompensate. They say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. It's just a matter of the heart anyway. So it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. I'm going to explain why that is. But that's, these are both demonic traps. 
One demonic trap is, I just line up my outside so I look good. The other demonic trap is, I don't do or say anything different than unbelieving people, but I tell you that I'm all spiritual on the inside. No, you're not. So you got, it's just outer or it's just inner. Both of those things are wrong. It's a balance. If you take the Word of God and you study very carefully and you give the same weight to the things the Bible gives, the same weight to the things the Bible talks about that the Bible gives in terms of weight, then you have this balance. Let me explain it real carefully. I think this is just another way for us to to explain the things that Jesus really clearly said. He really just saying one thing. There's just different ways of saying it. But holiness is really important to God. Everybody agrees with that. Scribes and Pharisees knew that was a given. Jesus obviously knows that's true. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's the Bible. I just quoted the Bible, Hebrews. So serious that if you, you have holiness, it doesn't come from just lining up outward things. And you can't say, well, I'm holy, but you just don't see it or hear it. It's just an inner thing. That's not biblical either. It's both. Understand there's a process, and that's important. And I think this is what Jesus is saying, that holiness is important, and the process that we get to holiness is important. Now, listen carefully. So the Pharisees are saying, here's how you get holy. You do a lot of outward things. And that's where you begin. You, get on, you begin on the outside. They actually ended on the outside too. You do a lot of outward things. It's not that they were probably initially... The, 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 you know, hundreds of years before when this whole thing started there with the Pharisees, there had been a return from Babylonian captivity and there had been a sensitivity on some, the hearts of some people like, we don't ever want to violate God's law again or look what will happen to us. So let's have a whole bunch of oral traditions. So they gathered a whole bunch of oral traditions together and they, they scrupulously memorized these oral traditions so that they would never violate God's law. So they added a layer of human laws to what God's law was to make sure that they would never violate God's law. But that was a wrong, that was wrong thinking. God's law is sufficient. The Bible itself is enough. But they added to that. Then about 200 years before Christ, that was codified. It was written down in the Mishnah. And this was a series of codes and Jesus never paid attention to that. He didn't want them to pay attention to that. It was a man-made thing. Men came up with that. It was traditions. It wasn't the, the law of God. And so in so doing that, they had gotten... And this is common. You see this. Uh, you see this like... An, and I, I'm going to name other groups, but I want you to remember that there are examples of it in our group too. But this, for the sake of illustration, if you're like I am, you might drive through a beautiful countryside. You might see like an Amish uh, community and you might think how beautiful and idyllic and also the bread is good, you know. And so you, you, the, the laundry's flapping in the breeze and everyone looks like it's just very, looks very holy and wonderful. And, and there are all kinds of traditions there and there are all kinds of legal regulations there. And there's a system in place for legal regulations. And if you're like I am, part of you kind of gravitates to that and you kind of go, that looks good. And, um, and yet, in fairness, if the truth is told about sects like that, groups like that, behind the scenes, often there's every imaginable kind of immorality and sin problem that every other group has as a fact. And so, in other words, it's not about getting a better system of outward compliance to create holiness and getting people kind of torqued into outward compliance, even though the bread is good right? It's not about that. The Baptist, fundamental Baptist, and we, that's our heritage of fundamental Baptists, is same way, 
Same way. I've been to conferences where pastors have like a whole choir of people parade in and these girls are dressed in just perfect. Their little knees weren't showing. Their, their chest wasn't showing. Their clothes weren't too tight. They had the big smile on their face. They had a big wavy hair. And they all stood up and they sang. And then you say as a pastor, man, I want to do that in my town. I want to go home and tell all the girls to put clothes on and have nice wavy hair and go up and sing nice songs about Jesus. I want to do that. So I kind of, I want to go home and I want to create that too. And I'm going to make it so that you got to do that. If you sing, this is the way you got to look and you got to, and then I, and then, and then it looks good and you feel good. Amen. You know, and then, but the problem is, and some of those cases and many of those cases behind the scenes, there's just dark, filthy stuff you don't want to talk about. You got this outward thing going on. But behind are the, are the darkest kinds of sinful behaviors in those exact same groups, friends. Baptist fundamentalism is guilty of this in a bad way. And the world knows it, and they're like doing documentaries on it now. And they find this in our groups, they are going to tell the world, right? What's the answer? The answer is what Jesus said, pure from the heart of hearts. From the inside out. Now understand the process is important because what we tend to think is it starts on the outside and works its way in. If we have everybody behave right long enough, eventually their heart's going to catch up with their behavior and then their heart's going to be right. What Jesus is saying is that's not the process. It is not outside in. Hear this now. Often we, when, in our parenting, we think about this. And we think, I'm going to tell my kids, this is what you do, this is what you listen to, this is what you wear, this is where you go, this is where you don't go. There's an element of truth to that. You got a little kid, you go, no, you cannot play on the road. That might be bad for you. When you're little, I'm going to tell you, even though you want to play on the road, you are not going to play on the road. I'm going to control your behavior by forcing you not to play on the road. But if your kid is 20 and he's still playing on the road and you don't have him cured of playing on the road, what, what happened there? Right? Something's wrong, right? You, you get it? In other words, there needs to be a time when you say to a child, no, you have to wear your, your boots. It's going to rain or snow today. And, and shortly thereafter, you move away from that control that's appropriate for a little child that's not mature. And you move to influence, godly, biblical, internal, spirit-driven, biblically-driven influence. But in the process, don't you think it kind of gets a little bit ugly in there? And you're like, man, that's not what I would have listened to. That's not what I would have worn. That's not what I would have done. I'd like to see them. But they've got to find God themselves and their own heart has to be apprehended by God so that if they go to Baghdad or if they go to Detroit, wherever they go, or if they come from Baghdad to Detroit, they still love God. They still know God. They still live for God because their heart is God's. That's the goal you see, not control, but influence. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It is not going to work if you just line up a system of control for people. It won't work for the long term. They will resent you for that. And it won't last and it won't work. And what's going to happen is it's not real. But if God, the Holy Spirit, does a miraculous work on the inside first and it works its way out, there will be beautiful outward manifestations of holiness in the life. Or else the person's spirituality isn't real. So if you don't talk right and you don't live right on the outside, it... It's because there hasn't been something right going on on the inside. But you may look right on the outside, and you may be like the sepulcher that looks great on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones. That's the picture that Jesus used. And so you have, it doesn't start on the outside, 
But it starts on the inside. Let me recap this. Holiness is important to God. It's not just outer, but it's inner. It's both. And the process is important. It doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. We'll come back and we will talk about this again. But I think right now, I need a blank screen. So if you could blank the screen there for a minute. What I'd like to do now is this. What's the heart of this? Like, where, where, do we, where, do we, um, where do we find the heart of it then? And it's interesting that today we have, uh, in the life of our church, um, um, an AM communion service here scheduled. And a communion service isn't a tradition of man. It is a command of God. A beautiful, beautiful, loving, gracious, sweet invitation from God for us to eat together as a church family and remember the death of Jesus Christ. His death, resurrection, and that is the heart of what can change our hearts. Let's remember it. I don't think I told you something you didn't already know as a church today, but I think it's really important to be reminded because it's real easy to let the Pharisee come out in us, all of us. Man, we don't want this sin to take over our church. We don't want this sin to take over our families. And it is doing that, and it will do that. So we say we've got to get people to say what they're supposed to say, do what they're supposed to do, look like they're supposed to look, as a, and an outward will we'll create a system that outwardly forces that. That is what the Pharisees did. But the heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. That God would do something so radical in us that it would show up everywhere we go. Listen, please, carefully to me. Some of you really liked the I'm getting on the Pharisees part of my message. You like that. And others of you, you really like the part of like there better be holiness in your life part of your message, right? That's just the way we are. And, and I'm not one day one way and the other day the other way, depending. Here's, I think, what might be helpful. And this is the means that God's told us to use. We examine our hearts. We examine our hearts. We, we expose our hearts to God. The communion observance is to happen after a self-examination. And so to aid in self-examination, then what happens is we, we use the Word of God to, as an aid in self-examination. The Holy Spirit whispers in our heart, or maybe He speaks very plainly, this is not right in your life and you know it. Then you don't just begin to outwardly comply, but you confess, oh God, do a work, a, a thorough work, and maybe you need to be saved, or maybe you need a, a, a touch of sanctification, a gr- spiritual growth in your life. And you admit that. God, please, I admit the sinful behavior, word, attitude, motive. I, con- I confess it. I admit it. I repent of it. And I bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. So you see, and usually it happens like this. The Word of God or somebody teaching the Word of God, pointing out the Word of God, exposes the, the truth about your heart. You examine yourself. You admit it to God. You, you, you put forth effort, but you realize the effort itself won't sanctify you unless it's supercharged by the Holy Spirit. Unless it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But he will do that in answer to prayer. And you ask God to cleanse you in that area. Then you're not a hypocrite. And you aren't on your way to the pit. You're real, genuine. Your heart is right. And so to that, as an aid to self-examination, can we look together as we prepare our hearts for communion to Matthew 15 and verses 20 and 21. And here's what Jesus said. And it's interesting because it's like categories. It's almost like, comprehensive categories out of the heart proceed evil thoughts 
murderers when you hurt other people. Murder, murder would be the top of that, but there's a bunch of steps leading up to that, right? Where you hurt other people. Adulteries and fornications, this would be sexual sin. Sexual, wrong, uh, Bible teaches, of course, that our sexual thoughts and behaviors ought to be within the context of marriage. One, one man, one woman. Anything other than that is a perversion of what's right. And, and it shows our hearts are not right. And so with thefts, and you take something that doesn't belong to you, it shows that your heart is not right with God. Jesus said that. If you defraud or cheat, uh, false witness, sins of the tongue, lying or blasphemies, he also mentions, uh, filthy talk, coarse jesting. You know what really grieves me is when I read that list, I see myself in it. And I've known you long enough to see you in it too. So it's pretty serious. What are we going to do? We're going to try harder? Well, yeah. Is that going to be enough? No. What are we going to do? Are we going to repent? We could just be honest. Very, just very honest with God. Oh, God, let me be a planting that the Father planted, not someone as devil planted. Right? I don't want to be left alone by God. How can you keep from being left alone by God? You look at a passage like this, you find yourself in it, you honestly admit it. Oh, God, I see my bad talk. I see my things I've stolen. I see the immoral thoughts, my immoral behavior. God, please help me now. I repent. I, I confess it. I repent of it. And I ask you to do what only you can do to either save me or to sanctify me by your Holy Spirit. Then you're not a hypocrite. You're a sinner, but you're not a hypocrite. You may have sinned. A believer who's a saint may not be categorized as a sinner in that sense. Though a saint may sin, he's not categorized as a sinner. Yet you may sin. And you may sin in a grievous, horrible way. You may deny the Lord like Peter did. You may get involved in something terrible like the Old Testament, like David did. And yet still be a person after God's own heart. So what I'm trying to say here is very pastoral. It's not just a teaching to be teaching. It's like I'm trying to help you by, as a seeking God guy who needs everything that God can give to help you seek everything that God can give for you and that we won't have pews full of hypocrites that just go through outward motions and their hearts are far from God. Now, if you are not sure about that, do not, no one's going to pay attention to you, but don't take the bread and don't take the cup because the Bible says you'll bring condemnation upon yourself. It's serious. So we, we, we gather today in, in, in view of a holy God who knows the secrets of our heart. And Father in heaven, I pray as we take the elements of communion that people that don't know you as Savior would just feel this drawing, this desire to be saved and set free from their sin and the guilt and the shame and, and the confusion of all of that and help them to be saved. And then later on, after their baptism, they can participate with us in communion. And Lord, I pray for those who are claimed to be Christians, those who are or who claim to be Christians today, that in the few minutes as we have this time of self-examination, that there would just be repentance going on all over the room, that people who've had 
dark and evil thoughts, would repent of them and confess them. People that have taken things that don't belong to them, God would say, oh God, help me, forgive me. And that they would make restitution, give back what they took and be right with God. I pray that there would be public confession of public sins. I pray that there would be private confession of private sins. I pray, Lord, that you would touch the person who's here today who doesn't have a problem with a, with a filthy sexual thought life, but they're proud, who doesn't have a problem with stealing things that aren't theirs. They wouldn't think of staking something, and they look with disgust at people who take things that aren't theirs. But they're pseudopious, and they're externalist in their heart, and they don't see it. And, and I pray you convict them. Their heart, their, they honor you with their mouth, and their heart is far from you. I pray that you'd help us not to look at others so much as we look even now within ourselves and examine ourselves. I say this with great seriousness, sobriety, realizing, Lord, that if it wasn't for the covering that you offer through your son Jesus, that I would, I would, could be sent into hell right now and, and myself. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want you to hear, before we part, a few scriptures to remind us about what we're talking about today. Then I have a slide I want to show you this morning that will embed the idea, the big kind of takeaway, the truth that Jesus taught like three times in three settings in our text so that this would be just a unique and wonderful church, the kind that really pleases the Lord, the kind of church that doesn't add to what God says because we care so much and we want to add things to be sure but the kind of church also that really has exhibited in its members and us, people who are really growing in holiness among us, from our oldest people to the youngest people, growing in holiness, genuinely following the Lord, sincerely in love with the Lord, and growing in, in holiness. I want to remind you, as the Scriptures say, Matthew 6 and verse 1, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father. So holiness is an, it's an outward thing. It's an inward thing that has outward manifestations. But it's not just an outward thing. It's an inward thing that will always have outward manifestations. The Bible says in John 12, verse 3, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So our goal isn't to get people to say you're good. Our goal is for God to recognize that he has formed his goodness in us. John 5.44, how can ye believe which receive honor of one another and seek not honor that comes from God only? Luke 16.15, he said to them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, before men, but God knows your heart. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in God's sight. And 1 Peter 3, this is a beautiful passage, particularly aimed at women, but true of all believers in some sense, with whose adorning let it not, let not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold and putting out of apparel. Let it be the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, the ornament of a meek, quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. See, our concern should be not how men look at us or did we keep the man-made rules, but what does God see when he looks at us? And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that we may be able to answer those who boast in the outward appearance and not in the heart. See it? See the importance of that. Now let me, let me do this. I don't want to be trivial here. Let me see if the slide in this uh, beyond our applications that we just talked about, 
Holiness is important to God. It's not just outer, not just inner, but both. And it starts not on the outside, but it starts on the inside. And so all these things are true and they're, they're for us to remember. Now, without being trite or silly, at the end of a message, is pretty serious. There's different ways to express the main idea here. So I want you to pick the one that hits your heart the most. There are different ways of saying the same things. I'm indebted to a man named Les Olala for this. Years ago, I heard him say, Peter's probably a friend of yours, I imagine, isn't it, right? He said, true holiness, or something very much like this, true holiness always involves the head and the heart, are the hands, but it starts in the heart. So trueliness, true holiness always involves what we, what we think and what we do. We could also add what we say, and Jesus was specific about that. But it starts in the heart. Another way of saying that, pick your big idea, true holiness always involves academics, and I think this is what Les said, and actions, but it starts in the heart with attitudes of the heart. So a person might say, I have a good doctrinal statement. Well, bless your heart, great. You ought to have a good doctrinal statement. You shouldn't have a bad doctrinal statement, but you got to have more than a good doctrinal statement. You say, well, I do the right things. Well, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, right? See, but there's got to be the heart attitudes. And this is probably closer to the way Jesus said it in our text today. True holiness involves what you say and do, but it starts with who you are on the inside. Do you agree with me that you're people that want to be God's people inside out? Could I ask you, don't, don't publicly respond right now, but just before we go home this morning, could I ask you, could, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a wave of real repentance that crossed the church right now? Top to bottom, side to side, young and old. And every one of us just said, okay, God, where do you want me to start repenting? What is it that's not right about my heart? I will admit it. I will bring fruit meat for repentance. What will happen is that that will not happen. And nobody, in other words, if that happens, there are going to be wives that hear from their husbands. Please forgive me. I was sorry. I was wrong. (laughs) I was also sorry, but I'm sorry I was wrong. It's going to happen, right? If this happens, there are going to be dads that go to their kids and take them out for breakfast and go, you know, I got angry with you the other day. I was sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? That's going to happen. Things that are stolen are going to be returned 